Welcome to On the Side with Jackie London, a BS-free podcast where we're talking all things food, nutrition, and wellness to help you build healthier habits that stick. As a registered dietitian, author, journalist, and former clinician turned content creator, I've heard and seen it all. Join me each week as I debunk diet myths, explore the latest wellness trends, and answer all of your pressing listener questions. Plus, we'll hear from a guest who will kick off each interview weekly with a soup-to-nuts rundown and, okay, sometimes analysis of what they're eating, cooking, ordering in, or where they're dining out with tons of delicious ideas, lots of laughs, and plenty of pro tips in between. The one thing I can actually guarantee, I'll serve up tangible, actionable strategies to help you apply the science behind what works to what works best for you. Listeners, welcome back to On the Side with Jackie London. I'm singing. I mean, I'm just singing. I just had such an awesome interview with today's guest, Ariel Garden. She is a neuroscientist. She is a mom of two. She is, or she has a three-month-old. I mean, I met this three-month-old. I actually met both kids while we were on the Zoom, which was actually, which was just so cute and fun. And also just makes me think like this woman is an actual superhero. She's a former psychotherapist and she's the co-founder of the health tech startup Muse. We really talk about basically everything. We got into how Ariel transitioned from working as a therapist to becoming a Silicon Valley startup star. I mean, is that how you would say it? She, she's an all-star. I mean, she raised 18 million in funding for a science startup. I mean, that just feels epic for women in general, but particularly in such a male-dominated industry like Silicon Valley. So, I mean, she's a powerhouse. Um, She really opened my mind about the topic of meditation, which is something I'm personally kind of resistant to. I just feel like there's lots of ways to freeze your brain a little bit. And some of them include mindlessly walking or scrolling or, I mean, I don't really mean scrolling. You guys know what I mean. I mean, there's just like other things that you might be able to do to kind of distract your mind and focus on something different or focus on something relatively mindless. But I guess it really just all comes back to intention, which is sort of where I'm coming from on most things. But where Ariel is coming from is talking about this from the standpoint of her background in neuroscience as well as her background in psychotherapy and what she kind of learned and put into practice by starting this company, which is just fascinating. If you are struggling with pain, if you're struggling with getting to sleep at night, like if you feel that kind of thoughts racing thing, then this interview is absolutely a must listen for you because I, I've got to say, I was even just thinking about the muse last night after doing this interview, I, I went right to bed. <laughs> I've just passed out. I mean, like just based on what she said, I've got to say this interview is very relaxing. I I really, I feel like it was very zen. You're going to love it. It's not this kind of like woo-woo type of BS that you all who are listening right now probably know from me is not really my style. You're going to love this interview. Ariel is fascinating. The story of how Muse came to be is fascinating and how it's been tested and evaluated by the Mayo Clinic and what they're currently using it for will fascinate you. So without further ado, do. Ariel Garden is up next. As always, be sure to rate and review and leave a five-star review for this podcast, for this episode. If you like what you hear, let me know. I read these reviews and I love hearing from you. I got a great review the other day that just really made me laugh and smile and I am blowing kisses to you, whoever wrote the review that says broken record at the top. Loved it. Okay, let's get into it. Ariel Garden from Muse 
She's going to talk about meditation and so much more, and you're going to love it. Reach me anytime you need anything related to food, nutrition, health, a topic you have in mind for the podcast, or a question that you'd love answered at Jacqueline London RD. But first, let's get to a quick listener question. All right. So today's question is, do I have to be careful about the amount of sugar in fruit? All right. So short answer is no. (laughs) The longer answer is, okay, it depends on how you're eating that fruit, right? I mean, the real answer is no. Let's just be clear. The real answer here is absolutely not. Fruit, more produce, more often is my personal mantra. It is the general food and nutrition philosophy on which my entire career and personal brand, frankly, has been built. And I stand behind it. If you are someone who is insulin dependent and you have diabetes, then the way that you consider your fruit timing and your carb ingestion timing at large, right, is going to depend, of course, on the type of fruit and the form in which you are eating it, right? So dried fruit is a more concentrated source of sugar and therefore more concentrated source of calories in the form of sugar. And that's only because we did the sad thing of removing the water and the fiber and all of the goodness that came in that original fresh fruit. And we put it into a dried little package. Now, that being said, I love dried fruit. And you guys know that. I I feel like I have talked about dried fruit just about on every social media platform everywhere of late because it's such a convenient, portable, easy to use and convenient to have on hand type of snack. And it's the perfect canvas on which to like dip the nut butter or like stick into a PB&J when you're kind of like on a road trip with your family or something like that. I don't know. That that feels off, but you you get what I'm saying here. <laughs> I think it's super convenient. I think it's awesome. I think it's delicious. And there's a, certainly a time and place for it. If you were saying to me that you are living on the powdered sugar pineapple rings that do have the added sugar in it that aren't the unsweetened dried fruit version, I would say ah, that's more like candy. That's not really quite fruit anymore. That just became an actual candy bar, in which case I'd rather you have a candy bar because then you'd know it was a candy bar and not the fruit sugar thing, okay? So bottom line, eat real fruit more often. As far as I'm concerned, the sugar that comes in fruit, there's sugar in absolutely everything. There's naturally occurring sugar in literally every food that you could possibly eat. So Yes, fruit is more carbohydrate than it is anything else, but it's also got water, fiber, and nutrients that are critical for health. There is no one anywhere that is struggling with their weight that is in that position in life, in a place where they are overweight or obese because they have just been sitting around binging on bananas. That's just not a thing. Okay. So just keep that in mind. I just feel like we got to just drill that one home. There is no one binging on bananas and thinking, how am I going to lose weight? I'm just eating what Jackie said. I'm eating the more produce more often. I'm doing it. Okay. It's not happening. So more fruit, more often, more veggies, more often. Think about eating fruit in its real wholesome, real food form, not in a concentrated form like a juice or like a, um, a sweetened dried fruit and use unsweetened dried fruit when you need to as a more convenient and portable option. All right. I hope that helps. Let's get into our episode. As always, you can reach me at Jacqueline London RD with your questions, concerns, comments, whatever you need on Instagram. Again, that's Jacqueline London RD. Ariel, welcome to On The Side. So welcome, first of all, welcome. 
It's Thank you so much. amazing to meet you and to have you here. And I cannot believe that you look as rested and as refreshed as you do, given the fact that you have a three-month-old. Amazing. Thank you. It's <laughs> Joy gets you through a lot. <laughs> that's a great, I think that that is so well said. So very well said. Joy gets you through a lot. I like that. I feel like that could be your tagline. We could just keep that sort of in the back of our minds. Like your everything is, you know, you're having one of those days where everything is exploding in front of you and you're like, I'm still joyful. I'm still joyful. (laughs) So there's sort of, there's two experiences. One is joyful. The other is competent. Like, yes, the world is going kind of crazy right now. My baby's crying. My kid, this is yesterday. My kid is head in camp and I have to go pick him up and somebody taking, you know, patching up the basement and it, you know, like all of these things happening simultaneously. And there is this feeling of, okay, all of this is happening and I am getting through it. I am managing through it. Hey, okay. So if it's not joy, there's a sense of like, okay, I can actually handle this. And then there are the moments when you feel like you can't handle it. And that's a moment of surrender. And then you're like, okay, I just surrender to whatever's going to happen. And, you know, I I can't push myself any further. So it is going to be what it is going to be. That is beautiful. That makes me feel like I have endless wisdom to glean from you. I like that you, and because I don't know that we always know the difference between the moment where you're like, am I supposed to surrender now? Or, (laughs) or do I have this? I don't, I'm not sure. (laughs) Right. I mean like that distinction, it feels like it could be a fine line. It's a very fine line, but the truth is you kind of have both because even in those moments when you surrender, you are still kind of navigating the ship. You know, there's still this part inside of you that's still figuring it out. And so what you're actually surrendering is your frustration with the situation. What you're surrendering is the beliefs about how or what you should be doing. So what you're surrendering is all of the kind of psychological and emotional baggage that you may be carrying in this moment, but the act of doing still continues. Totally. Okay. That leads me into a perfect segue for where I really want to start. So you started your career as a psychotherapist. Is that right? Yes. Um, wow. So I was trained as a neuroscientist. I was a psychotherapist in private practice for a decade uh, and then created a device that helps you meditate. So I want to get into all of that, but when you in practice, when you were in practice seeing individual clients, I would imagine individuals and sometimes couples or families or anything. Primarily individual. Okay, therapy. great. So if you had to come up with let's say, one sort of universal theme that your clients were um, generally needing some, needing your guidance or seeking your advice. What would you say that sounded like, felt like, looked like? What, what was happening in the, in the general sense that, and of course, everyone is individual, but on a, on a more macro scale, were there any themes that came up for you? Oh, it's a great question. So I was in practice from about 2006 to 2015, something, something in there, 2005. And at that point, you know, life in general around us was quite good. Right. It's, it's amazing how, you know, the world has turned on its head, but you know, those were like the glory the good days. Old days, the good old days when like <laughs> things worked normally, product got delivered on time right? and there weren't right. wildfires every five minutes, you know, it was just like, life's fine. Right. Um, and and so at that, 
who knew? <laughs> and so at that point, we tend to, you know, turn inward into our own traumas and issues. And, and right. those are where the problems lie. So right. probably the biggest theme that I had in my therapy practice was around anxiety mm. and how anxiety colors your thoughts and feelings in your experience of the world. Oh. And so, you know, a lot of what prompted me to then move into understanding how you better create tools for meditation, understanding the brain was wanting to help people understand how the thoughts that you have in your head don't necessarily need to drive your behavior and your experience of life. And that's mm. a, that's a very strange disconnect because you're mm -hmm. like, well, my thoughts are me. Like this, this is me. I'm doing all this thinking, but right. often those thoughts are lying or skewed, you right. know, when, when you're being driven by an anxious lens or fear, mm. your brain is literally being co-opted by a little part inside of it, the amygdala, mm. and causing you to think differently and feel differently than you would otherwise if that little part was quieter. And so this idea of being able to master your mind and yeah. be able to shift your relationship to your thoughts so that you're not necessarily driven by them, by the anxieties, by the fears, and you can separate yourself from them and make different choices became kind of one of the driving goals of my life, teaching people how to do that. That's incredible. What's the process for you like when you're working to notice that, okay, we're seeing that these thoughts aren't necessarily serving you when you treat them as though they're thoughts, like we can recognize them, all of that. How do we take the the first step to kind of making that separation between I feel this way, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily the reality? Or how do I how do I take a little step back? Sure. So there's lots of different ways to enter into that final step of understanding how to take the step back. Yeah. One tool I love to use was the anxiety monster. Oh. So yeah. I need this. <laughs> I when see you, start you to anxiety that, monster. You're exactly. Here. <laughs> when you start to feel that feeling of being like ramped up and you have the thoughts of, of anxiety and the feelings, um, that's not you. That's the anxiety monster. And, you know, right. the anxiety monsters just come in and co colored everything and you can throw it on the wall and tell it to get lost. I do the same thing for the inner critic when you have, oh, uh, yeah, when you start to hear those one. internal negative thoughts, it's like, that's okay, well, that's, one. those aren't real. Right. That's the inner critic. That's this little jerky dude, or for some people, it's a woman, woman, for me, it's a man in my fucking head. Fucking asshole. I mean, yeah. excuse my language, but a fucking asshole, I would say. <laughs> I think it's so one person. So we're allowed to swear on yeah. this podcast. Yeah. Yes. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So one of my favorite exercises is to imagine that you're walking down the street with you and your best friend mm -hmm. and pick something that your inner critic has said to you that day. And for me, it's often, you know, your hair looks stupid. So I imagine I'm walking down the street <laughs> with my best friend and somebody comes up to my best friend and tells her her hair looks stupid. And it's like, how do you respond to that? You're like, fuck off. Yes. Who are you? Get lost. Like, she's gorgeous. What on <laughs> earth are you talking about? Like, what right do you have to tell her these things? Get out of town. Yes. Um, yet we have this stupid little jerk telling us all these things in our head all day long. So yeah. take your anxiety, take your inner critic, throw them along against the wall. Love that. Imagine what he or she looks like. It might be a gray cloud, a storm cloud. Um and then tell him all the things you would have told that stranger who is so rude to your best friend. You know, basically say, yeah. fuck off. You have fuck no off. right. Like, what are you doing inside my head? And you, you begin to separate here. these voices. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one fun but very effective tool. The yes. other kind of 
deeper tool that continues to give is of course meditation. So in the practice of meditation, what you're doing is you are sitting there and observing your thoughts. Mm. And in most of our life, when a thought comes up, we follow that thought and the next thought it creates and we're just thinking. And those are the thoughts that happen in our head. And that's what it is. Mm. In meditation, what you do is you sit there, a thought arises in your head, you notice that it exists. And instead of following it, you choose to move your attention elsewhere. And Mm. typically that elsewhere is onto the breath. So you have focused attention on the breath. Your mind eventually wanders away into a thought. You non-judgmentally disconnect from that thought, say, hey, I don't need you, don't need to follow you. And you bring your attention back to your breath. Now, when that happens, that allows you to observe your thinking Mm -hmm. and separate yourself from it. I am not my thoughts. My thoughts are something that come and go. I don't have to follow that thought. It simply can be and go away. And when you do that, you are both able to, as you've earlier said, observe the things that are happening. Those thoughts that maybe aren't true. (laughs) So you're like, right, that's like not really serving me now. And you have the practice of allowing it to let go and not Mm. following it and creating that distance and making a different choice. Oh, first of all, two things I want to say to that. The first is that I can't tell you how well said that is about the inner critic, because I think we hear this language a lot. And certainly I, I, my former employer used it in a number of different sort of corporate communications items. But this, this kind of idea of talking to yourself like your best friend is when you say those words, just sort of on paper, like when you think about that concept, it sounds like a great idea in theory. But when you give it a visualization like you just did, I feel like, okay, yeah, no, I can really imagine that. Like like you just yes. gave it an actual real life scenario and that feels like so much less esoteric to me. It feels like I can actually, yeah, no, I'll, fuck you, I'm go away. <laughs> Yes. I wouldn't let anyone talk to a friend like that. Right, exactly. So it's a it's a beautiful example. And the other thing that I was thinking about as, as you were just saying that about meditation is that I also have never heard it described in such a way that also gives it very real life context. So thank you, because I feel like we hear meditation and so often people think... Oh, I just got to sit and stare or the, the, probably the biggest, the worst communication I'm trying not to think. Right. But like, that's not even possible. <laughs> yes. And when you hear that, that only makes you really frustrated. Right. Cause you sit there trying to not think. And let me tell you, like levitating would be easier than not thinking for five minutes. <laughs> you sit there trying to not think. You can't not think. Right. Thoughts right. keep coming into your head. And then you're like, oh my God, I suck at this. This is terrible. Right. I'm a terrible meditator. You feel bad about yourself. You feel bad right. about the process. You don't continue on. And so, you know, myth busted, you are not trying to stop your thoughts. Your thoughts will continue to come. You know, our, our brains generate thoughts. That's what they do. And yeah. your practice as a meditator is to observe that a thought comes and to make a different choice than following it. Oh, Oh, say that again. I love that line. I love that line. <laughs> yes. Your, your practice as a meditator is to observe that your thought comes and then to make a different choice than following it. Yes. It's like thought has arisen. Let thought go away. Move attention elsewhere. Wow. And it's hard to not think a thought. Right. You know, pink elephant. Yeah. But in meditation, what you're doing is you're actually moving your attention onto something else. So it's actually a very clever mechanism that harnesses the way that your brain works, which is Mm. what you attend to Mm. is what is getting the attention at that moment is what is getting your thinking, your cogitation, your brain power, et cetera. And when you move your attention off something, then that item previously just 
goes into the background. So in meditation, you're focusing, you know, it could be on a candle, it could be on a mantra, a word mm. that you say in your head. It's, mantra is not a weird spiritual thing. It's simply, right. you know, a, a repeated word or phrase in your mind that focuses your attention. It could be on your breath, and that is the most mm. common one. Mm-hmm. So when this thought arises, rather than now thinking about it and putting your attention on it, you instead move your attention onto something else, your breath, mm. become fully absorbed in the experience that is in the present moment of breathing right. until the next thought arises and you get distracted by it, you let it go, and then you come back to breathing. And that's why wow. we say meditation brings you into the present moment yeah. because you're not following those thoughts. You're simply in the moment, the here and now with a physiological experience mm. of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of breathing. Oh, I love that so much. Are there a few mantras that you feel like have been useful? And I appreciate you saying that, by the way, because I do think that that's another great myth-busting moment there, because I think so many of us think that a mantra has to be something spiritual or that it has to be something complicated, right? Like it, and, and then it's like, oh, great. Now we have eight you know, eight different homework assignments all in this one tiny moment, and that wasn't the point of this, right? So by the way, I should say that the kind of meditation I just described is focused attention meditation. Okay. And okay. there are many different forms of meditation, but the most common one that people learn first and people commonly do yeah. is this focused attention meditation. Okay. So, Fantastic. you know, meditation can right. take on many different forms. You have Christian prayer meditation, right, you have right. all sorts of things, but the typical meditation that we tend to talk about a mindfulness meditation yeah. follows what I just shared. Okay. So in a mantra practice, mm. your word can be anything. And Mm. don't feel like it needs to be some esoteric phrase um, that may or may not have, you know, spiritual resonance to the universe. It can really just be something that feels good to you. So pick a word you like and you want to think about. Could be Mm. love and just repeat love, 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 love in your mind. Um, It could be, you know, sunshine. And as you as you yes. play around with these different words, you're going to feel the kind of halo or glow that these words give you. You know, when mm. you're repeating the word love, you're going to probably feel pretty good. When you're repeating the word sunshine, you might feel like warm and open and glorious. Mm. Uh, just choose something that you want to pour your attention into. And as you do that, it ends up sort of pouring the, the halo of its effect, all of that meaning of the word through you. And eventually the word may become meaningless, which is also great. It's yeah. just a series of sounds. So in this process yeah. of meditation, we start to, you know, play with our experience, our sensory mm. experience of life and, and watch how it transforms when you simply sit there and be with something. So may I ask you, and this is this is really more of the personal nature, but so you just gave birth to your three-month-old, I mean, really three mm-hmm. months ago. Do you feel like having this kind of toolkit or this understanding or this practice it, just based on your work, do you feel like that was helpful when you were giving birth, like when you were in labor? Oh my God, yes. Feel, okay. Okay. Tell us about that because I feel Absolutely. like our listeners need to know more about this. Yes. So- there's a popular form of birthing called hypnobirthing, mm. where you where you learn to breathe deeply and disconnect your experience of sensation with the experience of pain. Mm. So I did hypnobirthing, but really it was all of my meditation practice that came into this. Wow! And in the same way that a, we can look at our thoughts and not become attached to them right. and not give them more meaning, you can do the same thing with sensation. So during the birthing process, mm-hmm. I would feel a contraction come on 
And I would simply experience the sensation of it. I wouldn't label it as pain because once you label it as pain, you start to create all of these dynamics around it. Like, oh no, I'm in pain. Pain is a very negative association. Right. It also helped that I built a meditation and pain course prior to giving birth what? Um, with oh, okay, Dr. Ron Ariel. Siegel. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> it happens to, to have she been preloaded. She to be the expert in this. That's amazing. That is amazing. So I built it with Dr. Ron Siegel, who really is the expert in this. He's a wow. doctor at Harvard who really works with pain and meditation. And so pain has two components to it. One yeah. is the primary pain, which is the actual sensation that you're feeling. Right. And the other is the secondary pain, which is all of your thoughts and feelings and cogitations and emotions around that pain. Mm. And so typically the primary pain, you know, it's a sensation. It does mm. its thing. And it's the secondary pain that then really causes us the issue because we're now thinking, oh no, this pain is so terrible. It hurts so much. When is it going to stop? Oh um, God, which yes. only exacerbates the pain situation and prolongs the pain experience. Wow. Okay. I have so many follow-up questions about this because I think this is critical. And also it's so, so true. And it's exactly, it almost brings us exactly back to what we were talking about initially, which is that it's not... Sometimes the pain can be terrible. I mean, not to dismiss it in any way, but sometimes the pain can be terrible. Sometimes it's not so terrible in any given situation, but because we have anxiety or we have thoughts or associations around that pain, but it's really just like the natural associations that come up from that one painful experience or the first painful experience or many painful experiences that give us that anxiety and that only contribute to making that worse. Is that right? Yes. Okay. And it doesn't even need to be past painful experiences that make right, it worse. Right, right, You know, imagine, you know, my kid getting a needle for the first oh, time. Yeah. You just, the thought of a needle was really scary. Totally. Um, and needles really aren't that painful, but we have <laughs> so much associated with it. Right. And actually, audience, if you'd like to practice this now or at yes. any point, a very simple experience to do is pain today. So. <laughs> take your fingernail. I'm hunched. I, yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or pinch. I mean, mm-hmm. I happen to have a, a sharp fingernail and just uh, dig it into your skin anywhere you want and just sit with it as sensation. Oh yeah. Just, no, this, this nail is longer. Okay. We're literally, we're doing this with our, both of us are doing this with our hands, but I'm doing it with one hand. Ariel is doing it yeah. with both. Interesting. It's just sensation. Just it's kind of nice. It. I mean, I don't know if I'm supposed to feel that way, but it feels a little bit like my mind is just on this hand. Yeah. And okay, you breathe like deeply through this. it. Re- release your muscles around it. Because when we're in pain, we tend to clench oh, yeah. up and tighten all our muscles, which only exacerbates it. So, you know, release your muscles, breathe deeply and just feel it as sensation. When you do that, it's really not so bad. It's like, I, I can't even make it hurt. Even right. though like, I've got a mark, I've pressed so hard, but I can't make it hurt. <laughs> I, my, I just held up my palm. My palm is bright red now. Okay. Anyway. Yes. Yeah. Whereas if us. somebody came up to me and like, you know, stabbed me like that, right. I would say, ow, I would right. scream. I would maybe cry. I'd be very angry. I'd have a lot of stuff associated with right, it. Right. 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 I'm sorry. Forgive me. What was the name of the course? Pain and meditation. Is that what you said? Um, it's actually called transforming pain, transforming pain. Wow. So tell us about the course and tell us about the, the idea for this and, and how this came up for you and where you began this work with Dr. Siegel. So, I mean, it all really begins with the desire to create tools using meditation that help people in various parts of their life. So with Muse, the 
meditation company that I have, mm. we have a host of different really programs and experiences to help you deal with whatever comes up in your life. So it could be, I'm having relationship issues. So here's meditation specifically for relationship. I, you know, want to improve my leadership capacity here, meditations for leadership. And pain was something that is, you know, so debilitating for people Mm. and mindfulness and meditation are really helpful for. Mm. So we, began the process probably about a year and a half ago. We tested it in a 50-person multi-site study with two different pain clinics. Mayo Clinic is now using our pain protocol, pain meditation protocol in a fibromyalgia study that they're doing. So it's, yeah, it's been fantastic to see this work really rolling out inside of the clinical and medical space and will eventually become available to consumer as well inside of the news platform. That's fantastic. How incredible is that? I mean, that feels like lifelong goal. Check. (laughs) I feel like, like getting, getting something like that into a clinical trial and then having that be used by the Mayo Clinic also feels like, like a tremendous accomplishment. I feel like you must be so excited about that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this is probably the fifth study that the Mayo Clinic is running. They wow. ran an initial study using Muse for breast cancer patients awaiting surgery. Wow. Oh. Um, wow. Yeah, wow. It, what yeah. a need. What a need that was then met immediately by, I mean, that's that's incredible. Okay. Thank you. And so that was really successful. They were able to show an improvement in quality of life, decrease in stress, decrease in fatigue during the cancer care process using Muse. And so from there, they started to distribute it into other arms of the clinic and uh, other clinicians got a hold of it. And so we have a study running in fibromyalgia. The frontline doctors in the emergency room are using Muse to help them manage the burnout associated with covid There's another one in Cushing syndrome, which is a stress-related syndrome and a few more. So it's been, it's been quite extraordinary and it's used in their executive health clinic as well. Wow. So this may be a silly question, but I feel like it's, well, I have a number of silly questions to ask you, but we won't spend too much time on the silly stuff, but I, but, but here's my, my big one is, are there any descriptors, like any different, what, how would you differentiate a pain-related meditation versus the anxiety of anticipation of something scary like like surgery for breast cancer like how would you what would be the defining characteristics that make those two types of meditation different for people sure so there's as we talked about there's different forms of meditation so you can in a pain meditation what you're learning to do is you're learning to just sit with the physiological sensation yeah So you're like, I can have feeling, I can have a sensation of feeling and not create thinking around it. Right. And so, you know, when a thought or a fear associated with the sensation comes up, it's like, you're just a thought, move back, Mm. you know, come back to the sensation. And often when we have pain, there's a lot of resisting and avoiding Mm. of physiological experience because you're in pain and you don't want to feel it. And so that resistance causes a lot of tension, which then just exacerbates the experience. And when you actually just put your attention onto the pain Mm. and you just sit with it, you're like, oh, okay, this is what I was afraid of. This is not so bad. I can just be here. I don't need to carry all this tension around it. Right. For the breast cancer patients, um, that early study was actually 
was in 2014. It was when the Muse first came out. And so that was just using our most basic Muse meditation, which is a focused attention on the breath meditation. No additional guided content, nothing. It was just our very core experience. And even that provided significant benefit. And so since 2014, you know, we've created all of these programs and experiences that you can wrap around uh, different issues in your life. Mm. But back then it was just like pure focused attention meditation using EG neurofeedback. Wow. Okay. I think it's time. I mean, we've, we've made it to 27 minutes here and yet we still, we haven't fully introduced the muse. Let's talk about muse. How did it start? Where were you? What were you doing? Where were you like, you know what we need is an EEG neurofeedback headband. Tell us. <laughs> Tell us. Start from the beginning, Ariel. Where did this? Where did the idea come from, and how did you get this in motion? I mean, it's an unbelievable story from from what I've read so far. Sure. So I was trained in neuroscience and started working in a research lab with Dr. Steve Mann. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who basically invented the wearable computer, kind of created Google Glass before Google did. Right. And he had an early EEG BCI, brain computer interface system that he had been working with. And in about 2002, I teamed up with him and we began to create concerts where you could hear your own mind. So you'd put an EEG <laughs> electrode just on the back of your head, just on a little piece of fabric, it would sit sit next to it. And by shifting your brain state, focusing, relaxing, we would then shift the audio landscape that you'd be hearing. So you'd be sitting there and you'd actually be able to hear your own mind and actually be able to start to shift the sounds you're hearing based on your brain state. Okay, I got to pause there for a follow-up. So when, let's say your brain is a hot mess. (laughs) For a sign, a very scientific term, hot mess. Okay, your brain feels like a hot mess, and you're hooked up to the EEG. What does that sound like? <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, it, it can sound like whatever you program it to sound like. Okay, okay. Um, Concerto, uh, right? It's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like this one is Lizzo. It's like when you're feeling really good, right? That would be amazing. Okay. So what we're able to detect with the EEG is shifts in brain state. So able to detect when you're focused, when you're relaxed. In our mind meditation, we're looking at focused attention versus mind wandering. So we can see these big shifts in state and then associate these big shifts in state with different sounds, which will give you feedback as to where your brain is at. So in the Muse meditation experience, When you focus your attention on your breath, you hear very calming, peaceful sounds. When your Mm. mind wanders off into a thought, you hear the sound of a storm picking up. So, you know, wind or rain gets louder. And that is then your feedback, your recognition that, oh, hold on, that's a thought. It just got, it just got windy. Um, And so it becomes your cue to let go of that thought and bring your attention back to your breath when you're going to hear the peaceful little chirping of birds and it's going to sound really nice. And you'll be very reinforced, like, yep, this is the right state. Just stay with this. That's lovely. Then a thought will come up. You'll go over. The wind will start to rise. You're like, oh, okay, that was a thought. Thanks for letting me know. I didn't realize. (laughs) Let's come on back to the breath. Make the birds sing again. Wow. That's unbelievable. That is, talk about something that we definitely always needed and didn't have. And I certainly didn't know that we had it until hearing about you. Wow. 
So I used to work in clinically in hospital. So I, and I was working primarily with brain injury patients. So the EEG was like, like we had a lot of people at different phase, like that would go in for an EEG or have that kind of follow-up just to check on brain activity, depending on their state of health and their recovery. What was the inspiration behind taking something that has typically been used in a hyperclinical environment and coming to maybe we could really do this for for the everyday for people to use this tool more as a preventative measure versus a um a treatment or an evaluation of what's happening does that make sense as a question yeah totally so i mean <laughs> the first the first leap was a technological leap right so you know the typical eg systems that you're referring to are yep. very wired mm-hmm. there's goop on your head it's mm-hmm. it's it's clinical. Yes. Um, and so we are just at the point of technology. And because I happen to be working with the, the father yeah. of horrible computing, right. um, we are just at the point of technology where this stuff became wireless, mm. um, where you could have a system that could just talk to your cell phone rather mm. than be plugged into a big computer. Right. And we could program this real-time feedback. And then my co-founder, Chris Amini, is just the most incredible engineer that you've ever met, both wow. engineer and you know artist and spiritualist and all of these things. And so it took an extraordinary amount of technical capability to make this thing small, dry sensor, easy to wear. But in the same wow. way as we we really just caught the wearables trend. So yeah. you know, right as we were coming out, you had the like you feel band and the jawbone up and the first Fitbits and the things that could sit wirelessly and simply on your wrist and mm. wrist and monitor your physiological activity. And so we were able to create the same thing for the brain. And then once we had the device, the question then became, what's the best thing to do with this? Yeah. What is the thing that's going to like really move the needle for humanity to help people in some right. meaningful way? And I, you know, as a therapist mm. was teaching my patients meditation. I was a terrible meditator. Yes. My brain would bounce be my all over the question. place. Right. Yes. Okay. Um, my patients were, were frustrated. You know, they'd come back and they say, yeah, it was great. But like, who really knows? Right. And so we realized that we had this technology that was able to let you know when you're focused and when your mind was wandering right. and that that was a perfect application for meditation mm-hmm. because the most common question people have when they sit down to meditate is, what am I supposed to be doing? Right. <laughs> What's going right. on in here? Am I doing this right? Um, <laughs> right. I mean, my honestly, the question that I didn't that I wanted to ask, and and it slipped my mind. Uh, I mean, you could say pun, but it's not even a pun at this point. But um, my my bigger question that I think looms over a lot of people's sort of fear or mystery or questions about meditation is also how long do I have to do this, right? Because a lot of us feel like, okay, great. I already decided, blocked off my calendar for this half an hour of taking a walk outside. Now I got to do something new, right? Like there's a little bit of that, of the homework that I, I feel like probably as a therapist, you've experienced this so much of feeling like another homework assignment. You know what I mean? Like there's this like extra work component that comes in when before you realize that it's something that you might want to do or look forward to doing, right? Like wh- how how much time? Like what is the sweet spot? Is there a sweet spot or is it however long feels right to you? Sure. So there there is a sweet spot. Ooh. And 
the sweet spot is uh, <laughs> the, amount the, that, the, yes. the amount that you can comfortably commit to. So oh. for some people, when you begin your meditation, that's like two minutes because yeah. you sit down and you're doing this thing and maybe it's causing you like a little frustration or anxiety. And it's like, that's okay. Just sit there and be with it. Your mind wanders. You notice you come back, you know, the wind picks right. up, the birds come, the wind picks up, the birds come. Um, and then you extend it to five minutes and you're like, okay, I've got the hang of this. This is a groove. And then yeah. you extend it to seven minutes. And at seven minutes, you're like, oh, I'm no longer good at this again. Right. And that's okay. Like, it's okay to not be good at meditations. It's just a practice. Like if you just started right. playing basketball. I suck at basketball. You know, it's going to take me a long time to, to get something in the basket. And that's okay. Yes. It's the practice. <laughs> right. And as you do the practice, Unlike in basketball, where it's really just about getting into the net, like right. here, as you do the practice, every minute that you spend in the practice is teaching you. Every minute oh. that you spend in the practice is allowing you to shift your relationship to yourself and your thoughts, is allowing you to sit and breathe deeply, and is really teaching you deeply how to shift yourself into what we typically refer to as a more evolved state. This idea wow. of being able to observe yourself, of being able to have better choice, of being able to, you know, be responsive to a situation rather than reactive. Responsive versus reactive. That is magic. When you were starting your own meditation practice, what were some of the obstacles besides the reacting? <laughs> <laughs> were, were there others? Were there others that came up? And and I hate to say this to you because, but I feel like our listeners will probably want to to know more about this. But like, I know I'm I know where your answer is going to go, but I think we need to hear you say it. How long does it take for you to feel like I'm doing this practice at the very least? Right? Like, okay, I've committed to this practice. I'm doing it. <laughs> Okay. So, um, my own journey, I was yeah. a terrible meditator. I was a psychotherapist who was teaching meditation and I would go home and try to meditate and I would get so frustrated yeah. and I was very judgmental of myself and goal oriented. And as soon as I felt like I wasn't good at it, it would make me more frustrated and I wouldn't want to do it. And I would right. dislike myself. <laughs> right. Totally. Really, really 100%, terrible 100% human, human reaction. Totally relate to it. Okay. Carry on. Yeah. And so, you know, I'd read all these books about meditation and they'd talk about all these states you can attain. And meditation was kind of doing the opposite for me. Mm. And it was quite frustrating. Mm. And, you know, I, I picked it up in fits and starts because it's supposed to be good for you. And even more embarrassingly, I was supposed to be good at it because I was a therapist. Um, and I wasn't right. good at it. And so it was really in the process of building news that I actually got it. Wow. Um, you know, as we were building news, I was testing it and we were refining it and using it with expert meditators and, and being able to track their state and building our algorithm relative to it. And after using Muse, there was one day when I was sitting down to do a long format essay. Wow. And normally this would take me forever because I'd be very distracted. Mm. You know, there's a thing you're like, you're looking over there. You're looking over here. What else? It was before Facebook. So at least I wasn't that. Right. <laughs> and this long format right. essay took me only 45 minutes to do where it should have taken me hours. And that's mm. because I had been learning this practice of Noticing my mind wander onto a distraction, let it go and come on back to the birds, like come on back to the thing that I'm focusing yeah. on in front of me. And even before I noticed the 
shift in my life, I actually noticed that shift in efficiency. And it's like, oh, hold on. And then over time, it takes time to develop, but that's okay. You know, this was just in the first few weeks of using news. I noticed that over time, I then noticed that my urges that I would have to like check my phone Mm. just sort of dissipated. And it was kind of strange, but it was because I had learned to just sit with being, sit with feeling and put my attention elsewhere if I didn't want the thing. And now in my, you know, much more mature adult life, I'm 42, I've been um, probably meditating seriously, you know, committedly for six or seven years. Now the benefits are tremendous, you know, in multiple areas of my life. I can start to enter into a fight with my husband and feel my own defensiveness arising and be like, oh, well, you're just defensiveness. I can see rise. I can see fall. What's underneath that? Mm. Oh, underneath that is is sadness about what you're saying. Okay, why do I feel that way? Um, what is the best way for me to respond compassionately to you in this moment? Mm. So it becomes this process. The feelings don't go away, mm-hmm. but when they come up, you're not ruled by them. You know, in the right. past, it would have been like, he was like, you didn't unload the dishwasher properly. And I'd be like, I did unload the dishwasher <laughs> properly. Like, what's your definition of properly? Because mine is the way I did it. <laughs> I've seen that as like, you mentioned the, was it the anxiety monster? This is like the defense yes. monster. Like, totally. <laughs> yes, 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 yes. And then he, so now he's like, you didn't load the dishwasher properly. And I, you know, might feel a moment of that initial feeling arising. Right. And then I'll just let that fall. And I'll look at what I did and I'll be like, oh yeah, the cup was in backwards. Like the bowl was facing backwards. And so there's still like, you know, food craps stuck on it. (laughs) You're right. I didn't load the dishwasher properly. Hey, next time I do that, what's the best way for me to do it? And then I'll like sit and I'll make like a little memory thing. It's like when you load the dishwasher, remember to turn the bowls forward. Okay. And like, that's it. (laughs) All of a sudden I'm evolving as a human. (laughs) I'm becoming better at something. Okay. Rather than being defensive, that took a long time, and I'm still not totally there. I mean, but- that's epic. What you just said is epic because to me, the the biggest challenge in everything would be to say, "Well, I'm doing X, Y, right? Like, I, look at all these other things I'm dealing with right now. How dare you even bring this up, right? Like, there's the other. I mean, the idea that you even took take can take the feedback and then say, "Yeah, actually." I can just turn it the other way. <laughs> it's like a next level of evolutionary. I feel like you're you're at the next phase of humans, right? Like we evolved, we had we were primates, we were human. <laughs> and then we could be okay with loading the dishwasher badly. This is like, you know, on the Maslow hierarchy of needs. We're at the top, self-actualization. <laughs> This is the next phase of self-actualization is loading the dishwasher without judgment. Yeah. Of oneself. I mean, that's next level. I can't take even, it. Even worse, having somebody tell you that you right. did it wrong and then accepting it without judgment. Like that. <laughs> Here's another thing that I was going to say in an almost tongue in cheek way, but now actually I think it's a great question, which is what about your husband? Is he meditating? <laughs> and when? Do, and what about the people we can't control? who maybe we've started to become the next phase of self-actualized, but perhaps people in our homes or around us are still, you know, analog human. <laughs> so with great credit human, to my husband. Human 3K. 
Yes. Okay. With great credit to my husband, you know, he was integral in, in helping me understand that I was reacting, not responding. Right. Um, he's, he's quite an evolved human. Uh, and I still have more evolving to do. You know, we all do. Right. But right. I've, I've, I've cracked the dishwasher milestone. I'm very it's proud of That's a huge one. That's a huge one. So this is actually a very common question that I get, like, how do we get other people to meditate? And this is going to sound silly, but it's actually the best answer I have, which is yeah. uh, get them amused or or do one yourself, get one yourself. So this is like super common where like you'll bring the muse home, the woman in the relationship and you're totally. like, I like meditating. Right. And so like you meditate all day long and he sees you meditate and doing your yoga and doing all these nice things. But he's like, that's for you. That's over right. there. And then you come home with this cool gadget and he's like, oh, cool, a gadget. Let me steal it. Yes. And then, yes. And then exactly. he's meditating. I've right. heard this literally hundreds of wow. times or like, a muse comes into the home and like mom brings it home. Dad starts using it. Kids start using it. Now kids are competing with each other for who could meditate more and get more meditation points and more birds. Oh, and now as wow. a whole family are meditating. This is, it's a, it's How a common cool phenomenon. How is that? I'm definitely getting a muse. I wish I had a muse before I, before I spoke to you, but now I'm extra excited to get one. So this is another question that I want to make sure that we spend some time on because I know that meditation and sleep Right. Like, and, and stopping us from actually going to sleep at night. Like when you get into bed and you've got those thoughts and they're running on loop in your mind and you, or you have done everything quote unquote, right to get you ready for bed, but you're like, I'm still not, I still can't shut it off. Do you have specific sleep meditations in the muse? Are there other sort of techniques or practices that have come from the meditation practice that play a role in sleep? Great question. So you've totally nailed it. That sensation that you have when you're lying there yeah, at night, the can't sleep because my mind is racing. Right. This is what meditation helps you solve. Right. So when you practice meditation during the day, you learn to move your mind out of that spiral. You learn it's safe not to think these thoughts because somehow your brain feels like it needs to think all these thoughts at night because you've got all the space to think it. It's like, you actually don't need to think these thoughts. And you're training your brain <laughs> to realize, hey, I don't yeah. need to think them. I can move my mind elsewhere and shut down my consciousness and go to sleep. So what we heard from a lot of our Muse users is that they were meditating just before bedtime to get this benefit. Right. And so we created a new device, Muse S, which is wow. soft and flexible, and you can actually wear it to fall asleep and throughout the night. And then we took it sort of a step further than meditation, and we created a cool tool called the Digital Sleeping Pill, which tracks your brain as you're falling asleep, it tracks your state of wakefulness and changes the meditations and the guidance and the audio that you're listening to as your state of wakefulness changes in order to actually walk you into sleep. Okay. Uh, sign me up. I mean, I'm literally, I'm like, uh, what is the website, Ariel? I mean, I'm literally, I, as you're still on the Zoom with me, because, <laughs> because if I had had this last night, I feel like this is a huge game changer and our listeners need it. Where, where do we find it? Where do we go? Uh, at choosemuse.com. This, this is not a paid commercial. Right. <laughs> By the way, this. this is not at all paid. I literally am on, I'm about to go to the website. Choosemuse.com. Choosemuse, C-H-O-O-S-E-M-U-S-E.com. Oh my God, this has been epic. Ariel, thank you so much for being here. I cannot thank you enough for this incredible insight and for everything that you're doing to help us not be such unbelievable crazy people. I have two, I have two more questions that we gotta that we gotta get to because I feel like just first of all, there's something, and I'm sure my listeners will agree with this, but there's something about you that is just that first of all just makes me feel very calm. 
I feel like I've got this today. Like (laughs) Ariel's here. She told me we got this and we've got this. Like I just, it's just very soothing to hear all of this from you. And also like from these like concrete examples there, the tangibles I think are the most important part for so many people, right? Because otherwise it's like this elusive thing that you're striving to get to a state that you've never, that you've probably experienced before, but you don't know that you've experienced it before because there's no tangibles. There's no like concrete example. And you just gave us so many. So thank you for that, first of all. And second of all, you mentioned something about first responders, and I, I feel like that's something that we've got to just touch on for a sec. Is there a distinction in the meditation practice for burnout? Or what? It, where does it begin with burnout? Because I know we hear a lot of things. It's such a common word now. We're hearing it everywhere. It's also a diagnosis. But what's the distinction in essentially meditating to reduce burnout versus meditating to fall asleep or to start or to reduce anxiety? What does that kind of feel like? What's the distinction? Okay. So on the one hand, burnout meditations contain all of those things because you need to sleep well, you need to reduce your anxiety, you need to reduce your stress. Right. So when you're meditating for burnout, you're doing all of the same things. You're doing it within the context of self-care and being able to continue to show up in situations that are really difficult. Mm. So some of it is making sure that you're taking breaks as you go, self-compassion, self-care. Some of it is sleep. Some of it is being able to be compassionate towards the person you're caring for Mm. without losing of yourself. That's a very important part. Mm. A lot of it is self-soothing and ways to bring down your nervous system. Um, Kristen Neff has this beautiful Mm. meditation um, called affectionate breathing. And you breathe as if you're hugging yourself. It's the most lovely thing. And so it just gives you- I just had a good inhale with that just as I thought about that. I love that. Wow. Yeah. Some of them are very short because when you're a doc in the ER, you don't have a lot of time. So it's like, how do we give you exactly the experience you need in the two minutes that you have between patients? Amazing. You know, what, what is the way that you can tap into this just as you need it in the simplest fashion to then let you galvanize further, yeah. relax, galvanize, move on to the next. I love that. We got to go to Choose Muse because we all need this. I feel like you, <laughs> nothing has convinced me more than this conversation that it's time to meditate. But now I feel like that feels far less intangible and also something that I would absolutely look forward to. Just you talking about the birds really got me. I feel like, yes. The, the chirping birds, the chirping birds feels like peace. You've got to tell us. So like, I've got, I've got a, I've got a five-year-old. You've got here. a five-year-old. Actually six year now. Six come, year old. come say hello. Mom, it's really important. What's really important? Oh, that is really important. That <laughs> leads us right into a, listen to this segue. The that is really pancakes. important. Pancakes. It's pancakes. It's pancakes o'clock. Okay. Your last, it's your last meal. It's your last meal before yeah. you and the family. I'm, I'm coming down my lovey. Again, in one minute, it's the last question before pancakes. That was such a, can you, you can't even make that kind of segue up. You really can't. That was magical. That was magical. What, what, let's just say you're going to space tomorrow. You're leaving earth. You're going to space for a little while. Are you going to have pancakes? Are you making pancakes? Probably. What would be like your dream meal to go to space on a high note? So pancakes is pretty good. Uh, my pancakes is, is amazing. Yes. Keto, so he makes uh, these banana almond pancakes. Wow. They're very fluffy and delicious and with whipped cream. Because frankly, yes. my my dream of everything is whipped cream. I could not agree more. I could not agree and more. Cherries. 
Yes, cherries. Red, or are we going with like a Rainier, like a, a yellow? Red. red. Yeah, 100%. This time of year also, they're magical. Ariel, thank you so much for being here. Tell us where we can find you and any other information that we need to know about about Muse and, and you, everything to do with you, because we need more of you. Oh, that's so sweet. You can find me on the socials, um, Instagram, Ariel's Musings, Twitter, Ariel.Garten, um, and also at Choose Muse on Instagram and at Choose Muse on Twitter. And then I have a podcast called Untangle uh, that I co-host with Patricia Carpus, where we talk about all things the brain and meditation and how to live a happy life. I'm subscribing now. I'm subscribing now. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in today to this episode of On the Side with Jackie London. If you enjoyed today's episode, please snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag me at JacquelineLondonRD to let me know your favorite takeaway from any part of the episode. If you're loving the show, if there's a topic you'd love to hear more about or a guest you'd love to listen to here, I'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can scroll down on your podcast app to where it says ratings and reviews and rate this one five stars, of course, and share your feedback. Your words might just be what the next person needs to tune in and start feeling more empowered and living better one meal or snack at a time. Of course, be sure to follow On The Side wherever you get your podcasts to ensure you won't miss out on any episodes. And remember to check us out. Check out the Q&A deep dive on the On The Side YouTube channel. This show is produced and edited by Elizabeth Evans Media Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Jacqueline London. Keep in mind that any advice provided on this podcast is based off of my clinical judgment and application of research and practice as a registered dietitian, and it should not take the place of medical advice from your own personal physician. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.